Well, it's good to see everybody today. I'm glad you showed up for this sex talk. <laughs> oh, so who uh, gave you the sex talk? It uh, was something Dad never even would approach. And I was probably 11 or so years old, and Mother had to talk. I played dumb. <laughs> I didn't tell her that Grant Clowers and I had found a Playboy in a, in a little, over, kind of a ditch that was underneath 15th Street in Joplin. And we spent a lot of time in that ditch. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a tough thing to do to have that talk. Reaction from my kids after explaining how sex works, you've done this three times? <laughs> One of my children literally laughed at me when I explained sex. It took several minutes to convince the kid that I was not making it up. I had prepared for many reactions, but not scornful dismissal with points for entertaining tall tale. So what were you all taught, and who taught you about sexuality? This is Denise and me skiing in Lake Washita outside of Hot Springs, uh, Arkansas. This is our very first kiss. When Denise and I skied toward each other to the middle of the wake, and I reached out my arm and kind of pulled her close, and we kissed, she knew that something was very serious. Because I had made a vow that I would not kiss a girl until I was engaged. She knew about that vow. So when I gave her a kiss, her mind was beginning to work. And she got so excited after that kiss, she just did a flip on those skis. <laughs> Sorry we didn't get that picture. I made that vow in May of 1973, and this picture was... Uh, an event, May of 1980. Seven years. The vow that I made came out of purity culture before purity culture was even a thing. In 1997, a guy named Joshua Harris wrote a book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. 1997, but I kissed kissing goodbye 24 years before that. Josh opens his book with this parable. Anna stands at the altar on the day she has dreamed about for months. The church is crowded with family and friends, but as the minister leads Anna and David through their marriage vows, the unthinkable happens. A woman stands up in the middle of the congregation, quietly walks to the front, and takes David's hand. Anna watches in horror as six others follow suit. Is this some kind of joke, she says, I'm, I'm sorry, Anna, he answers, staring at the floor. Who are these women, she asks. They're girls from my past, Anna. They don't mean anything to me now, but I've given part of my heart to each of them. This book warned that dating could cause irreparable emotional, physical, spiritual damage. Now, the same drive that drove Josh Harris to write that book and to kiss dating goodbye 
is the drive that drove me to kiss kissing goodbye. On the negative side, I was driven by fear and ignorance. On the positive side, I was driven by a desire to do the right thing, to be a good guy, uh, to be pleasing to God, and to do what I thought would be best for myself personally and for relationships. so that I, I kiss kissing goodbye as a protection against going too far, whatever too far means. So I drew that line between my junior and senior year of high school. Never to kiss until I was engaged. Life in the church has taught many of us two things. One is that God loves you, and if you don't love God back, he will send you to hell. The second thing we learned is that sex is the most awful, filthy thing on earth, and you better save it till marriage. We've really not done a very good job of teaching people, adults or students, about sexuality in the church. I posed on my Facebook page this question this week, what did the church teach you about sex? And there were over 80, between 80 and 90 uh, responses, and some of them are these, zero, a whole lot of nothing, don't. That's what we, a, lot, a lot of us heard about sex. My high school youth pastor talked about it way too much. Basically said it was great when between a married couple but a sin outside of marriage. More than half of our youth group was doing it at the time. (laughs) Maybe there's something to say for not making such a big deal against it. You know how teenagers can be sometimes. Say too much against something, making it forbidden, and they want to go try it out. And that's the truth. Only God agrees with it, this person was taught, and is even pleased about it when a married man and his wife engage in sex with each other, no exceptions, everything else is wrong. This person learned men and women can get married and have babies, an undisclosed process, (laughs) anyone else is going to hell. That it's dirty, and it's instant damnation unless you're man and woman in a government-recognized marriage. The responses were not just a majority, but almost every one of them were sad. And it was a accurate, but a very sad commentary on how the church has a terrible history and maybe even a terrible present on this subject of sexuality. A lot of the talks, and I didn't get a whole lot of my youth group about sex. My mom taught uh, myself and my sisters about sexuality, and she was so very positive. She was such a positive person in this area. And so my, my background and my exper- exposure to Uh, The uh, sex education was uh, something for which I'm very thankful. Mother did such a good job with that. But 
in a lot of youth groups, a lot of the sex education is focused primarily on the girls. And a lot of times those youth groups gave these two messages. The first one is this, that you are dangerous. One of the responses to my question on Facebook was, also in youth group, I was taught that any skin I left exposed, I was giving boys permission to touch. So that's how I should, why I should dress modestly. This person said she was taught that girls had to be the strong ones. I remember being told, girls, if a boy gets you in the back seat, you say no. You never heard anything about any accountability for the boys. It was just expected and accepted that the boys would have urges. The girls were the guilty ones if it happened. They were the ones who failed because boys just can't help it. So the girls, by and large, had a story that they were taught that they were dangerous. And it was their responsibility to keep the guy under control. Yeah. And so the way to do that, one way, was to be to dress modestly. And because anything that you would wear could possibly just send that boy into a fit. And he would never, never recover. And it's all on you girls. And if the boy sins, then it's your fault. Basically, you are a stumbling block. So help brother out. Dress modestly. Then on the same time, we're taught that men are the spiritual leaders. <laughs> we're strong. <laughs> and hence you have people leaving in droves the church today. Yeah. This other person, in response to my question, said this. They were taught, just don't get caught. <laughs> Seriously, though, just for marriage, for girls. Boys will just be boys, and it's up to girls to put on the brakes. Boys are the accelerator, and the girls are the brakes. So in the Bible, there's this term called stumbling, stumbling block, and it's used in a variety of uh, applications in Scripture about any obstruction that a person might be uh, facing in their walk with Christ. There is a sexual connotation to that in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Yeah. Stumbling block. What is interesting to me is, is what does Jesus identify as the stumbling block? See, we were always taught that the girl was a stumbling block and the immodest dress was the stumbling block. That's not what Jesus says. He says that the person's eye who sees with lust is the stumbling block. It's not what the person is looking at that is the stumbling block. 
It is the eye of the person who is seeing that is the stumbling block. So a girl could wear whatever a girl wears. That's not a stumbling block, according to Jesus, but it's how my eye perceives that. That means my eye is not spiritually in tune. And something needs to happen to my eye. It's not the girl's fault. This mixed up teaching application that we have uh, are guilty of with this passage kind of serves as the basis for the accusation, the condemnation of, of women who dress a certain way Well, they're just asking for it. No, Jesus doesn't say that at all. Jesus says, no, the problem is not the girl's dress. The problem is our eye. I think it's kind of interesting that boys were never never taught to dress immodestly. It's only the girls that were taught to dress immodestly. And we all know the reason for that. Girls have no sex drive whatsoever. That was kind of given to. I was so surprised to find out otherwise. And grateful. Denise told me yesterday, I may not even go tomorrow. (laughs) Now she wishes she had not. Oh, gosh. I said it wouldn't be what? That bad? It's not that bad. But we're getting close, aren't we? Right up to the edge. Second message that a lot of girls are given by church leaders is this. You are damaged goods. What do these items have in common? Chewing gum, a chocolate bar, a piece of scotch tape, a gift or a present, a rose. What do those things have in common? Those are object lessons that youth teachers, youth pastors, and some senior pastors all across the nation have used to scare mostly girls away from having sex. To teach them that how having sex before marriage will ruin them and leave them disgusting like a chewed up piece of gum. Unwanted a half-eaten chocolate bar. Another person who responded to my Facebook question, paraphrase, each time you give of yourself, your gift is unwrapped. Each time your gift looks increasingly used, and eventually no one will want it. Another person responded, there was a program came out, I think, in the 90s uh, through the Southern Baptist world. It may have been earlier than that because I think I was a Southern Baptist pastor then. True love waits. If you aren't a virgin, you are dirty. Another person responded to the question that having sex prior to marriage was the worst sin and no respectable man would ever want you if not a virgin. Another person says, I had to go through the true love waits program. The activity I remember the most was a wrapped present. 
I held the package, stood at the front of the room, and then the youth leaders lined up the guys, and each of them tore off some of the paper. Then I had to read some paragraph about how virginity is like a gift. No one wants a present that was meant for them to have already been opened by someone else. Because of that one activity, I never told anyone I was raped at 15 until years later. I can't even imagine the rest of the damage that was done to the other girls in the group. Some of us will remember Elizabeth Smart kidnapped at the age of 14 from her home June 5, 2002. During the nine months she was held captive, she was raped repeatedly. When she was finally found and freed, she became an advocate for missing persons and sexual assault victims. At a forum on sex trafficking, she said that she understands why some victims don't try to escape the situation, why some victims don't run. She said she felt that. And she traced that feeling back to the education she received in her church on abstinence. That her church's teaching is what caused her not to run away when she had the opportunity. So what would there be about a church's teaching that would make a young lady stay in a sexually abusive horribly destructive situation. She said, I thought, oh my gosh, after having been raped so many times, I'm that chewed up piece of gum. Nobody re-chews a piece of gum. You throw it away. And that's how easy it is to feel like you no longer have worth. You no longer have value. Why would it even be worth screaming out Why would it even make a difference if you are rescued? Your life still has no value, folks. The church has communicated to generations, especially young ladies, through these offensive, disgusting object lessons that your worth and your value is gone unless you do sex their way. It's interesting to me that Josh Harris came out a few years ago, not very many at all, and apologized for his book and apologized for his views, even instructing the publisher to take the book off of future publications. Josh said this, Martin Luther said that the entire life of believers should be repentance. There is beauty in that sentiment, regardless of your view of God. I have lived in repentance for the past several years, repenting of my self-righteousness, my fear-based approach to life, the teaching of my books, my views of women in the church, and my approach to parenting, to name a few. But I... Specifically, want to add to this list now 
to the LGBTQ plus community. I want to say that I am sorry for the views that I taught in my books and as a pastor regarding sexuality. I regret standing against marriage equality, for not affirming you and your place in the church, and for any ways that my writing and speaking contributed to a culture of exclusion and bigotry. I hope you can forgive me. I get Josh, and I do live, I think, in a healthy state of repentance. You can be a person experiencing the presence of repentance without beating yourself up with guilt over it. And that's where I am with not just how I taught about sexuality, but in particularly what I did to, gosh, these people that I have, uh, that I love so deeply in the LGBTQ plus community who have changed my life and Denise's life. And I think as long as I live in that air, that atmosphere of repentance, of of uh, awareness and the grace that has been given to me, not just by God, but by individuals. Uh, it, do, it just keeps me humble, and I'm very proud of that. <laughs> but it does keep me humble and keep me aware that I am a person in process and that I make a lot of mistakes. And uh, I think that's a healthy thing. So is there a better way to teach sexuality than what we have been taught? I certainly hope so. A couple of things. Virginity does not equal value. Every person, virgin or not, bears God's image. And every person is valuable regardless of what that person does. Second thing I have learned and that was not taught is to embrace your sexuality. Uh, somebody asked me the other day, Philip, what would you say to your younger self given where you are today? Oh my gosh, on, on what topic? <laughs> well, they were talking about sexuality. And I said, I think I would tell my younger self, don't take so long to embrace the fact that you are a sexual being. There's nothing wrong with the fact that God created your body to experience sexual pleasure. There's nothing wrong with the fact that you get turned on by sexual images or sexual stories. God is not embarrassed and God is not disgusted when we get turned on or we experience some kind of sexual attraction. Has anybody ever spent any time in the Hebrew book of Song of Solomon? Just in case you haven't. It's a story of a couple. Some scholars 
don't think they were married. Some scholars think they were. I don't know. really didn't say. But I'm reading to you from my actual Bible. So you won't think I'm making this up. <laughs> One of several that I have in my office. Song of Songs, chapter 7, verses 6 through 9. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. I say I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. O may your breasts be like clusters of the vine, and the scent of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. I just love the Bible. <laughs> Chapter 4, verses 12 through 15. A garden locked is my sister, a spring locked, a fountain sealed. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with all the choicest fruits, henna with nard, nard and saffron and cinnamon, with the trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with all chief spices, a garden fountain, a well of living water and flowing streams from Lebanon. Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind, blow upon my garden and let its spices flow. And then it closes with this. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat his choicest fruits. Wow. Turn on some boys to men. I love it that the Hebrew people put that in their Bible. And it teaches us not to be ashamed of those sexual desires. And I wish I would have embraced that. And I wish we would not have taught shame about those sexual desires. Much of the church's sex education was built on threats and leaders doing their best to scare young people out of having sex and slut-shaming like crazy. And in case you were wondering, no, this is not healthy. The result of those teachings are not just my generation, but even generation before me, my parents' generation, and one or two generations after me, of people going through the church who are who have been taught warped and toxic views of sexuality, of dating and marriage and their bodies. So it's so weird. We're taught to say no to sex, and then you get married, and voila! Everything's good. Can't turn and flip that switch like that. You can't go from no to yes that quickly. Another person responded to the question on my Facebook. In church, I learned that before marriage, it was my job to say no to never think or talk about sex at all. And then on my wedding night, flip a magic switch and turn into a sex goddess who magically knows what she wants, is comfortable with her body, 
and knows just how to please her husband. So what I want us to understand is that a biblical, and I, when I use the word biblical, that's kind of a trigger word for me because there are a lot of things in the Bible about sexuality that are that's not positive. You go from the Hebrew people in the Old Testament who uh, uh, had multiple wives and uh, men who had uh, approved sex with the, their servants. Uh, that's biblical sexuality in some way. So when I say biblical sexuality in this context, I, I just really mean spiritually healthy sexuality. There's not one biblical sexual ethic, I don't believe. And that's why I would prefer to refer it to as a spiritual sexual ethic. I don't believe it can be summed up in a purity ring or an image of a chewing gum. I think there are healthier ways to teach our children and to teach ourselves about sexuality, about self-control, about responsibility, and about sexual behavior. And this is true with about all of my Christianity these days, to move away from a rule-based view of sexuality to a values-based view of sexuality and a values-based education. Paul writes, all that you do must be done in love. That's not a bad way to teach sex. Everything that you do, be done in love. My friends, you were chosen to be free, so don't use your freedom as an excuse to do anything you want. Use it as an opportunity to serve each other with love. All the law says can be summed up in the command to love others as you love yourself. Embrace that value of love and let that guide you in the area of sexuality. Owe no one anything except to love one another, for the one who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't covet. If there's any other commandments, they're all summed up in this. Just love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Why don't we move away from rules? Why don't we teach people how to love? That's why we've adopted our vision driven by love. So let's teach our kids and ourselves the values of self-worth, of self-respect, of kindness, of inclusion, of justice, of consent of sexual health, which would include, in my understanding, teach kids. I'm not going to say that's what's going on in the student venue today. Uh, contraception. I'm so puzzled by people who are opposed to abortion rights who are also opposed to contraception. Over the last 10 years, the rate of abortion has dropped like a boulder off a cliff because of the availability of more sex education and contraception. I grew up in an era where, no, if you, give, if you talk about contraception, you're given permission. Well, 
I'm not who I was. I do believe that were the priorities of the church shifted away from rule-based teaching and toward love, away from preoccupation with sexual sin or sex acts, that we might begin to reflect upon questions like, what are the characteristics of, of a sexuality that is gracious and that is infused with love? And I think if we approach it with values, instead of broken people, maybe we will have whole people. Instead of damaged people, we would have healthy people. And that's what we want.